Hello, and welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. This week, Matt Wapit interviews James Steed, who is a member of the advisory board for the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center. James is a longtime advocate of self-determination, and he has cerebral palsy and bipolar disorder. In part one of this two-part interview, James talks about his upbringing, how he got involved in advocating for self-determination, and how diagnostic overshadowing impacted him in his journey of getting an appropriate diagnosis for his mental health concerns. Watch for part two of this interview with James Steed in the next month. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks. Today, our guest is James Steed. James is a self-advocate with whom I have a long history. <laughs> a very long history. Very long history. I Almost met, 20 years, right? I know. We're, it's been we're, we're pushing on 20 years. Pretty close. I met James many, many years ago when I moved to Idaho. He was involved with uh, self-advocacy there and was part of the Developmental Disabilities Council. And we just kind of kept in touch over time. And after I moved to Utah, uh, James followed me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and moved to Utah, and now he's part of the Community Advisory Council for our University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, and he also serves on the National Advisory Board for the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center. So thank you, James, for taking a few minutes to visit with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your yourself, where where you grew up, your family, and some of your experiences. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if we're going to go back to experiences, um, I will tell you, number one, uh, that I was born uh, too much premature when back in 1961. And just by happenstance, I survived. I don't know how it was possible. I did um, suffer uh, brain damage uh, from the lack of oxygen, and hence uh, why I have cerebral palsy, probably a mild to moderate case, they would say, uh, but it affected my hip and my right side and my, and my vision. Um, as I grew up, <clears throat> My family were very supportive. My mother, actually, my sister told me this story, which I did not realize. My mother actually went to the school board to make sure that I was mainstreamed into regular uh, school rather than sent to a special, actual special school for people with uh, intellectual uh, disabilities. Huh. Uh, and that was back in like, I don't know, 67, 68. Wow. I had no clue. Yeah, I had no clue um, that she did that until my sister told me, gosh, this year, I had no clue. My mother, um, God rest her soul, passed away in 1976 from um, cancer, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, then my dad was left with five kids. Uh, including one with a, a developmental disability. Um, he remarried. Of course, at the time that he remarried, I was very much a teenager. 
and had been spoiled, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the young man with developmental disability, you know, they got the, the son, they got to, they got to spoil him. And boy, did I take advantage of that. And so anyway, um, as a teenager, as soon as I turned 18, I moved out on my own. I hated my stepmother at the time because she pushed me to, believe it or not, believe, uh, pushed me to get a job. I got a job and pushed me to be actually more self-reliant. She is actually the first person that probably dragged me into self-determination uh, and being, being more self-reliant on me instead of someone else. And I can attest to the fact that that lady, even though I did not get along with her for, 45, uh, for, for 35 plus years, because uh, I basically hated her when I was younger, was the one who probably changed my life for the best. And I can never play her for that. And now we've got a really close relationship. That's great. So was this in, was, were you born in Idaho? Yes, I was born in Idaho. Yes. Where, where in Idaho? In, po at Poc in Pocatello, Idaho. Okay. Huh. And so you grew up, you went to school. Um, and when you moved out, did you stay there in Pocatello? Yes, for, uh, for probably until like 1984. Then I moved to Washington and with a family that I just, uh, they, we became very close. So I moved up there to Washington with them. I was probably, what, 23, 24 at the time. Hmm. In fact, I became a, I became a godfather uh, to their youngest daughter. Huh. So how, you, you mentioned that your stepmother was the one who sort of uh, pushed you to be more self-reliant and to exercise self-determination. Um, outside of your stepmother, how did you start to get into self-advocacy? You were kind of, right, you were born and raised in an era when self-advocacy organizations and even the term self-advocacy didn't really exist. So what helped you develop your self-advocacy skills? Well, see, I didn't even realize what those skills were, but I must have had to have practiced them sometime throughout my life. Until, until like 20 years ago or, or 22 years ago, I think, um, the Adult Council on Developmental Disabilities was looking around for, now I know the word to be self-advocates in Idaho to become a part of this program that promoted this self-determination program in Medicaid where people with developmental disabilities got choice, control, and responsibility of the care that they received. And so we would go throughout the state and talk to people with developmental disabilities or self-advocates, if you will, uh, about these programs and how to become a part of them. And that's how I really learned about self-advocacy, to be totally honest, and what it was yeah. and how important it was in my life. So you were kind of just doing it and then, um, yeah. And then they yeah, be, before, before self-advocacy, uh, believe it or not, I was running a, 
uh, I was part of what was called at the time, and it still is, the, the, the Cooperative Wilderness Handicap Outdoor Group, basically the godfather of common ground, if you will. Uh -huh. uh, someone in Logan got the idea from uh, the Cooperative Wilderness uh, Handicap Outdoor Group, and that group was, I became a part of. Um, doing like biking and think, ha hand cycling and things like that. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I noticed when, when doing that was here's these volunteers and they would just show up to tether people in skiing, to help them in water skiing, to, um, to helping them bike or whatever they wanted to do. They were there helping them. And some of these things were quite dangerous. And I told the director at the time, I said, you know, we should start something that would or encourage people because they used to have what they called hog night, but it was just mm -hmm. showing films about, okay, these are, these, are, these are amazing things that you need to be a part of, you know, these amazing outdoor group uh, activities. But it, I kind of got it to where it started to change and Basically, I told the director at the time that, you know, here's people, here's these people, it's like self-advocates, and you're asking them to put their lives or their bodies, if you will, they're basically giving over, if you will, um, yeah. the, their own physical ability to do things to someone else to help them accomplish water skiing or snow skiing. So you got somebody tethering you back there. You're controlling it, of course, in some ways with a, with a, uh, you know, a ski, uh, what do they call those? Um, when oh, you're skiing, the, the, the poles, yeah, right. With a ski pole, but they're behind you, slowing you down when you're on a bike ski or, or, or something like that. They're there to slow you down. And I said, here's these dangerous things. And these people eat these volunteers just on the hill. I said, that doesn't cut it. <laughs> you know, you're asking people to give up not knowing who these people were. So I thought started this thing called Hog Night. And what it was, we'd bring people together. They'd go bowling. They'd have dinners. And it was bringing the volunteers and the participants together. So they got to know each other. Then they became friends. Oh, so it was a so it was a way for the participants to meet the people who were volunteering to take them out outdoors. Yes, exactly, and to create that bond before um, they got out there and did these wild, crazy things. So they were more apt to do these wild, crazy things <laughs> with a level of comfort zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Huh, that's that's interesting. I remember seeing pictures. Um, I remember Christine showing pictures, but then you know it was on Facebook and others, right, of the activities that you guys would do. I mean, there were some there were some pretty crazy things. I think I remember seeing one. Um, it was uh, who was it? It was Larry Freeze. Do you remember Larry? Yes. Uh -huh. I remember seeing Larry going like parasailing or something. And I mean, you guys did some pretty amazing activities. Yeah. I mean, Larry was a, a, a gentleman or a self-advocate with uh, profound cerebral palsy. He, 
he had no control of his body at all. The only thing that he had control of was his voice. Yep. And he really wanted to go parasailing. So they took him parasailing. And when they got back from Mexico, which this happened in Mexico, I pointed out to David that it's a good thing that nothing happened to Larry because his parents were his guardian. And I said, you, you did this without checking with his parents. <laughs> and at the time, he was only like 19 or 20. And I'm saying, oh, my Lord, could we have gotten a lot of trouble. So here's this boy. He convinced him. Um, and I call him a boy because I'm so old. Yeah. <laughs> but here's this young man, and he's conning David, who was the director, into letting him go up in, in, in this parasol, and they're duct taping him in. That's what they used, was duct taping him in. So there, you know, there was no restraint free here. They duct taped him into the parasol and took off. <laughs> oh, I remember Larry telling story. I mean, that was really one of the highlights of his life. I mean, it really was. Told that story. I mean, I don't think he was more proud than that moment he got to go parasailing. And I think the thing that he liked the best about it was the fact that it really made everybody worried. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, so and, was, and then there was fun, finally somebody that was really listening to what he wanted to do. Yep, exactly <laughs> right. I mean, that's the ultimate in self determination, right there, right? He, Larry wanted to go parasailing, and he figured out a way to make it happen. I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's real self advocacy, right there. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I would have been panicking. This is before, you know. This is before uh, 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 we got involved in in uh, the self advocacy movement in Idaho. And I would have been like, if I would have been in Mexico, I would have been like, uh, we can't do this. David, his guardian, yeah, would have a, a cow. We would be dead. We could be sued. <laughs> but luckily, I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you always have been the voice of reason, James. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about? I mean, just thinking about this and this group you were involved with there in Pocatello, you know, making sure that people with disabilities could get outdoors. Um, I know this isn't really one of the questions that I sent you, but I'm curious on your thoughts about the importance of allowing right, people with disabilities to take risks and to do dangerous things. You brought that up several times, right? These are dangerous things that people are going out to do. Um, do you see that as an important uh, element of helping people develop confidence and self-determination? Well, I do in some ways. I mean, people have dangerous things they're doing at, at all times. You know what I mean? Whether it's living on their own, choosing to live on their own, versus a facility or versus with mom and dad or whatever it is, you know? So when people with developmental disabilities who pretty much have, they have to have at least some care during, during the day, if yeah. not 24 hours a day, they're taking risk every day. So it's not necessarily doing something wild like you do in an outdoor program, yeah. but you, you, you hit a word uh, that, doesn't belong in self-advocacy. 
And that word is allowing, you know, allowing people to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, would somebody say that about Matt Boppett? We're going to allow you to do this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm allowing myself to live where I choose to live. Yeah. I think that's that's a really important distinction. And that's, um, yeah, you're right. The language that we use around that isn't always as accurate as it could be. So, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's kind of like, okay, for example, and then I may be jumping the gun, the gun here, but it's like where I live. Okay. Yeah. I will be honest. I live in a facility. Number one, because of um, uh, I'm considerably uh, considered medically fragile, if you will, or whatever it is. But I also have mental health issues that if I'm alone and my depression part of my bipolar is kicking up, I could end up doing real harm to myself. Where if I'm depressed and I get up, there's always something, somebody awake and they come in just like, you know, um, if you want to get up, just like you want to get up, whatever time you want to get up, Matt, it's yeah. the same here. If I want to get up at three o'clock in the morning, if I'm having a rough time, they'll get me up and there's somebody always to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And, that, and that's actually a really good point, you know, that it's a choice, right? It's a choice that you've made. Right. It's a choice that I've made, whatever, whatever it is. So you want to live. Okay. When you say, independence for everyone they want to be they want to have the freedom to choose wherever they live i choose to live here because i feel safer mentally and that may be the biggest part of why i'm here you know what i mean they could probably um at least get me 13 hours a day and then i don't know whether they possibly get me 24 i don't know yeah uh but if they could get me 24, I'd probably go for it. Huh. But, and that part of that, is, a major part of that is the mental health thing. Yeah. But you never know when that's going to kick up is the problem. Yep, that is, that is true. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people um, within sort of the self-determination movement who would um, find it interesting that you were involved with right, the self-determination waiver in Idaho and advocating for people, right, to live in the community on their own and to hire and fire their own um, service providers and everything else. And yet you've chosen to live within a facility for your own purposes. I mean, there's some people who might see that as contradictory. And it's not contradictory. And that's the thing. Uh, I really feel that it's not contradicting because I'm making that choice. I'm making that freedom of choice. Um, you know, it's always, uh, what is it? Uh, freedom, control, uh, choice, and responsibility. Yep. I have freedom. I have control. I have choice. And hey, I'm responsible for my actions here just like anyone else. Yep. You know, yep. I'm, I'm responsible for me. So if something happens, you know, yeah, it happens. That's great. I appreciate you bringing up those um, those sort of pillars of self-advocacy. You're exactly right. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of times we overlook that. We assume that self-advocacy means 
right? Living in the community independently on your own, but that neglects choice in some cases, right? And Exactly. And who's to say I can't be involved in the community, not only here, but at, at, in a broader sense, in Clearfield, where I'm living now, or yep. in the state of Utah, or in the in the national at the national level, like I'm doing on the two different boards that I'm on. Right, right. So you mentioned earlier um, your struggles with mental health, and that's a big reason why you've chosen to live where you live. When did you start to recognize your challenges with mental health? Well, as I go back, as I look back, because this is more of a looking back. I see where I would get manic early. I would call it manic early in my life where things would be just out of control. My mind, my brain would be just totally out of control. And I didn't know why everybody else said it. Well, it's because it's spoiled or because whatever the reasons, right. Or it had mainly it's the people would say it's had something to do with my self-esteem or, or whatever, because I have a developmental disability. But when I'm talking wild, I'm talking wild. I was 15, 15 or 16, and I got so mad at my sister. This was one of those times where I didn't have control. I really, truly didn't have control of what was going on with my brain or in my life and stuff. I remember getting so mad at my oldest sister that I went to the utensil drawer and tried to pull out a knife, and I ended up pulling out a butter knife. Now, the family laughs about that story now, but as I look back on it, how manic I was, and how, I don't know whether you'd call it somehow stressed out or whatever it was, but I couldn't sleep, I was up, I, you know, it was pretty wild time. I guess that's back when as I look back, that's when those things started happening. When I started to notice it, it was probably about only 15 years ago when I realized what it was going on. About 15 years ago, I started on my first um, mental health med. Mm -hmm. uh, then there were about 10 years ago, it started to where the, the depression got so bad, I ended up in a number of facilities while they tried to figure out what meds would be best for me. Right. And as I've gotten older, it has gotten, I don't know whether it's my brain or what it is, uh, but it has gotten worse because I've spent, in the last year and a half, I've spent, uh, what, six weeks in a mental health facility, two, two weeks at a time. So yeah. it has, you know, affected my life in yeah. a lot of ways. So what, 15 years ago is probably when I knew I had a problem. Yeah. Well, so you're, you're currently, as I mentioned earlier, on the uh, Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities National Training Center Advisory Board. Um, and one of the reasons that we uh, selected you to be on that board was a presentation that you gave that um, somebody sent, I think it was Christine from the DD Council there in Idaho sent a recording, right, with your application to sit on that board. And it was you talking very candidly um, about the struggles that you faced um, with dealing with your mental health, um, but also accessing mental health supports, right? Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, they were there. 
But they always went back to the, my, uh, the problem was with my developmental disability, my cerebral palsy. Right. They never, never looked at the fact, and this is, this is up to even 10 years ago. They never looked at the fact that it could be something like uh, bipolar disorder. They always looked at the fact that it had something to do with my self-esteem, my lack of self-worth, whatever it was, even 10 years ago, Matt. I wasn't, I wasn't, to be honest with you, I was not um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder until 10 years ago. The stuff was going on and everything, but it wasn't until one counselor and one doctor at a facility that they sent me to figured out that, hey, he's got, he's bipolar. And that, so they diagnosed me with a bipolar disorder. As I look back through my life, they hit it dead center. That's, that's really interesting. And yet, unfortunately, I don't think it's uncommon, right? We call it uh, in, in the technical terms, it's called diagnostic overshadowing, where you know the, the disability, the physical aspect of the disability overshadows, right? Right, uh, exactly. And other issues. Um, and yet it's unfortunate, right, that you had to go for so long not getting the supports and the recognition, right, that you needed um, because everybody assumed it was because of the cerebral palsy. And the lack of self-work because of that. Because of that, right, right. You just weren't confident enough. (laughs) And you and I both know that 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 wasn't the case. Because think about it. I was speaking up for myself way back then. And to say that it was my self-worth or my self-esteem was kind of, as I look back, it was kind of laughable. You know, it's kind of laughable now because I know how I was 10 years ago. There would have been no way, or you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, there would have been no way that that was the case, that it was my cerebral palsy or my physical disability as it were. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MHDD Crosswords podcast. Visit our website at mhddcenter.org or follow us on social media at mhddcenter.